Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. We're back. Ian, how you doing? I mean, I keep saying this, but I've been better because quarantine life is different from, you know, any kind of society or, or normal situations that we're used to. But the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to spin myself in a positive direction here. I feel like I've been doing a lot better lately than I, than I have been over the last three months. We finally have some hockey stuff to talk about because Buffalo decided to clean house the other day. What were your initial thoughts? Um, You know, like... I'll say this, I I saw it and I was like pretty shocked um, by the fact that it was happening and then very quickly kind of pivoted because like Bayern Munich was playing and like they won the Bundesliga title yesterday. So it was kind of like, okay, I see this. I know we're going to record a podcast about it. Now I'm going to go watch the one team that I am very much attached to and I'm going to celebrate the hell out of it like a lunatic, which I did. Um but now that I've kind of sat back and thought about it, and you and I have kind of briefly touched on it a little bit, um, yeah, I have a lot of grievances with how this was handled. How do, what do you think? So Buffalo's been a disaster for the last decade, two decades. I'm not sure how far you want to go. Basically, decade. ever since the, the Danny the Breer, came. Chris Drury, uh, <laughs> Buffalo Sabres, that team that won, I want to say, 20 of their first 25 games back in 05, 06. And the conference like final, yeah, the conference final team. Yeah, that was their best team. And I feel like ever since Briere and Drury left, Buffalo's kind of been a disaster. And you could blame ownership. You could blame the general managers that they keep bringing in. But for whatever reason, even despite bringing in some high-end talent in Jack Eichel and Rasmus Dahlin, this team still sucks. They're no better this year than they were last year. There's a problem going on here, and I'm not sure if bringing in the guy who used to be the assistant GM is really going to fix the problem. I generally, I, I hope it does, because as a Toronto fan, I was really looking forward to the Austin Matthews-Jack Eichel kind of rivalry as they got better into their primes, heading into the playoffs, you know, some big matchups. And Buffalo just never really took that next step. I understand why you'd want a clean house, but at the same time, do I trust... Terry Pagula to put together a winning organization. Personally, I've reached the point where I'm just not there. Based on his recent history, the last 10, 15 years, I don't trust this to work, but I hope it does. You see, I think, and that's, I feel like we need to have a discussion, not just about Buffalo, because like, let's not pretend that the Pagulas are the worst owners in the NHL. We just, you and I just have to look up the 401 to Ottawa to see that. Um... But I think we should talk about kind of breaking down what good ownership can do or what bad ownership can do for a team and maybe corporate ownership versus like one or two people owning the team and kind of like break down what went wrong in Buffalo and point out just like the litany of things that are uh, that were red flags. And then maybe like I talk about where Buffalo goes from here, because I feel like I spoke to Dwayne, who's the famous Buffalo fan. <laughs> Colin Dwayne from that one radio station hit yeah, a few months ago. Yeah. He is the Steve Dangle of Sabres Nation. And basically, he just said, he's like, I need hope. Like, tell me 
what the Sabres have to do to be better. And so I think we we should probably break down like just kind of ownership in general and how that works, because I think a lot of people just don't understand how that ownership dynamic works. Um, But then also like Buffalo. I think ownership in general is something that we tend to not talk about in sports. Yes. I feel like we're so focused we need to. <laughs> on the general manager who makes the bad decision and the coach that you get frustrated with and the star player who's overpaid. These tend to be the, the talking points on the radio. We never really touch on ownership. And I feel like it's a big piece of the pie when we're talking about building a winning organization. You look at the top five owners in the NHL, you look at the bottom five owners in the NHL. My guess is that those are strong organizations when you have strong owners and very poor organizations when you have owners. Like in football, you look at Dan Snyder and the Washington Redskins. If you're meddling a bit too much and you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to have success. And he's just not the greatest human being. Yeah, that helps too. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, it's not great. That's, so I think, okay, let's start broadly and then we will drill down into Buffalo because I think we can kind of give important context on ownership that will be valuable when discussing why it has gone awry in Buffalo. All right, so I'll give you the floor. Start us off here. Okay, so you and I talk about hands-on owners versus hands-off owners. And we always talk about how, like, meddling owners, as you like to say, is never a good idea. It's never a good idea. But, okay, I think there's something to be said for an owner that is interested in the team, that doesn't just, like, screw off kind of thing. But a hands-off owner, think of like Larry Tannenbaum or Rocky Wirtz in Chicago. Like those guys, very, Larry Tannenbaum's in the dressing room greeting players and hey, how you doing and this, that, the other thing. And Brendan Shanahan still has to present to the board every fiscal year to say this is the budget, this is what we're doing, X, Y, and Z. But Larry Tannenbaum is not stomping his foot saying you need to go sign this player or you need to go sign Jeff Skinner and Rocky where it's the same thing he obviously knows Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane intimately involved from that perspective but isn't telling Stan Bowman you must go sign this player we must do this or having a huge say in hockey decisions like that's not a thing those are hands-off owners but then you have your hands-on owners who literally honestly there are some where i'm like why don't you just sit in the gm chair too you won't have to pay a gm you'll just sit there because we you want to make all the decisions anyways and jerry jones in football comes to mind for me (laughs) dallas cowboys owner you nailed it and i think that's one of those things and i don't follow football as much as you do but are the dallas cowboys benefiting from him doing that or is that more of a this is not a good idea he probably needs to take several steps back Well, that's the hard part is that when you have success and you have the owner who's very much in control of a lot of things, you kind of have to give some of that portion of the credit to the owner. You look at the Dallas Cowboys over the last, let's call it five years, the way they build up their offensive line, the receiver core now, it looks like a very strong team. Are we going to give all that credit to Jerry Jones? No, but at the same time, we tend to give all the blame to him when things don't go right. So I think your level of involvement as an owner, if you're making that much of an impact on hockey decisions, you better be making good decisions. Otherwise, you're going to hear it from your fan base because I think what most fans would want is a general manager or president of hockey operations who really knows what they're doing, kind of reporting to the owner and the owner having final say, I guess, at the last minute. But I think most of us just want smart hockey people making smart hockey decisions. And most owners don't fit that category. Right, because the reality of the situation is... 
the people who are hockey players and the people who are GMs, do they make a lot of money? Yes. However, when you compare them to the people that own the teams that they play for, they do not make a lot of money. It is millionaires versus billionaires. And the best example I can think of is Mark Cuban or Steve Ballmer. Like, those guys, incredibly smart human beings. Do they know how to make basketball decisions? Mark Cuban will fully tell you, no, I let my GM make the decisions. And that's probably the best way to go about it. You want to hire, if you're going to have success, you need to hire people who are equipped and talented and able to do the job. And then you need to let them do the job. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to hire you to do this, but I'm going to micromanage you and actually I'm making all the decisions. Well, then what the hell did you hire me for? Like, I'm not looking for an opinion. Just looking at the Buffalo Sabres over the last decade, uh, Darcy Regeer ran the team from 97 until 2013. And then Tim Murray came in, and that's when we saw some of those classic tank teams and they tanked for McDavid. It didn't quite work out, but hey, you got Jack, Jack Eichel out Jack of the Jack Eichel's process. a great hockey player, yeah. Hell of a player. I mean, if his team actually showed up this season, he would have been in the heart conversation, you know? Exactly, so, 100%. You had Tim Murray running it until 2017, then you brought in Jason Botterill from 17 to 20. Now you're bringing in Kevin Adams. We can go through, you know, the, the poor decisions that general managers of years past have made, but at the end of the day the owners didn't build a winning organization, right? You need to bring in smart people who are going to make good decisions. Bring in Botterill, who makes the Ryan O'Reilly trade. I mean, that that trade set the Sabres franchise back how many years? I think we need to talk about that maybe a bit later. Um, okay. Because it has come out that it might not have been Botterill's decision to trade O'Reilly. I don't know whose decision it was, but, but it was whatever a bad return one. you got for him is more my issue. If, if it's right. decided that this player doesn't want to play for this team anymore and you want to trade him, cool. We've seen that with Matt Duchesne in the past, but you can still make a good hockey trade in that situation. 100%. And I think also, like we talked about hands-on, hands-off. There's also a huge difference between corporate ownership and two people or three people running an organization. So you have like Alex Morello in... Um, Arizona, you have the Pagulas, um, you have Eugene Melnick, um, and wow, that's going very well right now. Um, Did you see but the then stuff you have... on the Sens Foundation, the, the charity thing? That was uh, fascinating stuff. I did a consulting project for the Senators, and we did research in the Sens Foundation, and we found some things that were uh, not too becoming of the Ottawa Senators, let's just say that. But at this um, point, nothing really surprises you with Eugene Melman. No, especially having done that consulting project. Like, nothing surprises me. And then you have corporate ownership. So, like, the Leafs are owned corporately. You have Bell, you have Rogers, and you have Larry Tannenbaum. But they're corporate, which means they got to answer to shareholders, so money-making is a huge part of it. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is owned by, like, a corporate, I guess, entity. I want to say the Rangers are too, maybe. Um, but there's a difference, right? Because when you have one or two owners as opposed to a board of directors, one or two owners, they basically lay the hammer down. They call you like, for instance, the New Jersey Devils. They have a bunch of owners, but then they have managing partners. And that's Josh and David. And... Those are the two that call the GM every single day. And those are the ones you have ownership calls with. The rest of the guys that sit on 
the ownership group, they don't really care because they don't really have a say. And so they're not really on the calls until you have your meeting kind of thing. Whereas if you're legitimately corporately owned, they care about the bottom line. They care about the team doing well because that legitimately affects shareholders. And if you tank a share, that's not a good thing. So at that point, you're, there's way less interaction with the board than there would be if Terry Pagula picked up the phone and called you at two o'clock in the morning. Like no one from the board is going to do that. So there's definitely like that difference, um, which I think is huge because it eliminates a huge part of the um, meddling part of it because one guy on the board can't do anything. So you're of the opinion that having corporate ownership tends to be more beneficial than one individual owner the F to report to? The way that owners are right now, yeah, I do believe that because I think that there's less meddling and I I think there's a lot of people in agreement that meddling owners they don't tend to have successful teams and all you have to look to is the Ottawa Senators, the Edmonton Oilers who have the best player on earth and can't get their crap together, the... Uh, Vancouver Canucks, which God knows what the hell's going on there. And now, like, we're looking at Buffalo. Since the Pagulas have taken over, they have been a dumpster fire. And I'm starting to think that it's not the GMs or the coaches' fault. I think a lot of Buffalo fans are with you on that. <laughs> like, how many times are you going to turn over your entire front office, your entire coaching staff, and say, oh, we just have a culture problem? At some point, and, like, language warning you are the fucking problem like so you're paid right now to come in and fix the buffalo sabers it is your job to turn this team around from the dumpster fire they've been over the last decade what do you do oh i think there needs to be the first step in fixing anything is you have to identify the problems because you can't Otherwise, it's whack-a-mole, right? You, you see one problem, you fix it, another thing comes up. You need to sit down and clearly identify the problems. And right now, the Buffalo Sabres are the ugly stepchild or the little brother to the Buffalo Bills. The Pagulas own both, and it's very clear that the Pagulas care far more about the Buffalo Bills than they do about the Sabres. And fans are starting to figure that out. So that's an issue right then and there because they're only paying attention when it suits them. And paying attention when it suits you and then wanting input in decisions that impact the team on the ice is a horrendous idea. Um, but I think you need to identify the problem. So, like, okay, you gave Botterill a vote of confidence three weeks ago. And then you fired him saying we felt like we weren't being heard. Followed that by inputting a guy with no management experience saying we've known him for nine years as your reason for that. That screams to me, and you tell me if you disagree, that screams to me that you want a yes man. What do you, like, do you not agree with that? That tends to be the vibe I've been getting. Uh, and again, I'm not in the room. I don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. But just based on the way Buffalo's operated over the last few years, it, it seems like the owners are, and, and I mean, in any organization, owners are going to be looking for someone who tells them what they want to hear. But if you're not going to challenge someone on the way that they've been going about doing things, I, I feel like you're not going to end up arriving at a, a successful destination. So where are we with the Buffalo Sabres? I'm just going to look at the roster right now and identify some of the main problems here. Jeff Skinner's making $9 million until 2026. How many goals did he score this year? 
Um, not a lot. And do we want to talk about how it's come out that Botterill didn't want to sign the Jeff Skinner deal and the Pagulas basically said, yes, we're signing it? Because there's meddling decision number one that was terrible. 14 goals in 59 games for Jeff Skinner in the first year of his $9 million contract. Okay, so let's run through their roster because I think you just spent a couple seconds looking at it and it's not great, is it? Yeah, so... Trying to identify some patterns of decision-making here that have gone wrong and what to fix. So signing Jeff Skinner at age 27 to an eight-year contract at $9 million, coming off of a career year, probably not a great idea. Signing Kyle Poso right as he enters unrestricted free agency, coming off of a big year with John Tavares, probably not a great idea. Doing the same thing beforehand with Matt Molson, if you can remember way back then. Do you remember Billy uh, Leno? That was Christian uh, Ehrhoff. I mean, oh, those are those are God. way back when. That was the first year. <laughs> Not taking whatever you were offered for Rasmus Ristolainen back in the day because he was a core piece. They could have got Taylor Hall for him. For him, they could have got. They could have got Damon Severson for him. I'm not sure what his value is right now. It's definitely lower than it was in the past. But it's definitely not. You're not getting Taylor Hall. I'll tell you that for free. But the biggest problem to me with Buffalo is that they don't score. Even though they have Jack Eichel, their offense is bad. And Sam Jack Reinhardt Eichel didn't scores, pan out nobody else offensively. Does. Sam Reinhardt didn't pan out offensively the way they would have wanted him to. He's a great 200-foot player. He's someone Was that, that because they didn't develop six. him? Potentially? That's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, because I always wonder that with guys like him or Sam Bennett. or Do or we guys want to get into I'm their thinking. drafting prospect pool? Because how is it, Ian... You and I talk about how teams need to draft and develop because you need to be able, if you're going to be good, you have to be able to plug holes. You talk about it with the Leafs all the time. How is it that you have missed the playoffs nine straight years and your prospect pool is not only is it not in the top 10 in the NHL, it isn't even in the top 20. How is it that you have Rasmus Dahlin and Jack Eichel out of the past nine years and nothing else? Casey Middlestat, terrible. Casey Middlestat, I believe, could have been a good NHL player, but they rushed him into the NHL to be their second-line center. He also did not need to be taken at four. He, well, Casey Middlestat was taken eighth over. Or, sorry, eighth. He did not I mean, need to be taken there. I don't know. I thought a lot of people considered him a top-five talent, weren't quite sure what he was, considering he played most of his draft year in high school. But here's the thing about Casey Middlestat, is that he never scored at an elite rate at even strength in the USHL when he played for the Green Bay Gamblers. When he went to the University of Minnesota, on the power play, he was pretty solid. But again, even strength was the issue. Never really generated much. And after a year in Minnesota where, yeah, 30 points in 34 games, you're thinking, okay, you know, pretty solid year. I don't think that's clearly ready to come into the NHL and play second-line center minutes. And they rushed it. And I think that that really hurt Middlestat's development. I think everyone watched the World Juniors. Where it was, Did he win the tournament MVP? He was fantastic in that tournament. Every time yes, he was on he the was ice, fantastic in that he made tournament. magic happen. But I think they took a bit too much out of that tournament and said, this guy's ready today. When all they needed was one more year, I think, in university for him to just have that monster year that you're looking for. Kind of like what Colorado Avalanche did with Kale McCarr. Could Kale McCarr have come up after his first year in college? Absolutely. Absolutely. But they gave him one more year to truly dominate at that level so that he could come up and have a ton of confidence, have some extra offensive ability. You know, I, I think that's what it really comes down to. You look at Jesse Pugliarvi in Edmonton, and I tend to think a similar thing. I go, at age 17, age 18, age 19, there are a few players in the world that I would want more than a Jesse Pugliarvi or a Casey Middlestat. 
But if you rush them along before they're ready and really try to force them into a role that they're not ready for, I think it can have an adverse impact on their development. And we saw that in Buffalo. We've seen that in Edmonton. Now, Rasmus Dahlin, jury's still out on him on whether or not he'll become that true Norris contending But defenseman. he was the slam dunk number one pick. Like it wasn't, there were zero eyebrows raised when he went number one. There were I'm thinking many more o- about development here. I'm thinking more about development versus yeah, the but they knew process. like th- the reality of that situation was everybody knew he was stepping directly into the NHL. I think it speaks to more about how Buffalo handles their young players more than about the players themselves. Because how is it that nearly every young player, with the exception of maybe Victor Olafson, has not reached levels that we expected? Jack Eichel is on an island by himself, the poor guy, because he is he's so special. I think Darlene, we can't make an assessment on, like you say, because he's still so young, and we know that defensemen take a little bit longer to come into their own. Like, that's not a surprise. But, but you look at the moves that he can make with the puck on his stick, and oh, his ceiling is, is top so end. high. But then it's like Rasmus Ristol, we're playing him with Rasmus Ristolainen. Like, are we trying to impede his development here? Well, speaking of impeding development, uh, bringing Rasmus Ristolainen into a tanking Sabres team and giving him top pair minutes. Amazing. I'm not sure if that's going to develop great habits in a kid who at age 17, 18, was an incredible talent. But now you're forcing him to go off the glass and out every time and playing minutes he's not ready for. I think that crushed his development. I think Rasmus Ristolainen could have become an all-star level defenseman with his talent in his teen years. A hundred percent. He was so and good for Finland. the habits that he learned at the NHL level were bad. And he's become, I don't know the right way to describe it, but a player whose raw talent doesn't meet the results that he gets when he's on the ice because of the bad habits he developed in his youth. And Well, not in his youth, in his young years with the Buffalo Sabres. Right, first, because if you watched him at when he was at the World Juniors playing for Finland, he was terrific. He was their best defenseman by a mile. Look at him when he played in the Pro Finish League at age 17, age 18. This guy was awesome. And then you come, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it speaks more to Buffalo's development because, like, you're looking at all these prospects who, realistically, if you have all of this talent that you've accrued in the past nine years from not making the playoffs, where the hell are they? You, You would think that they would be in your lineup by now, right? So it's one of those things, and... Not only that, like, we're talking about development. The Sabres also fired most of their hockey ops department. They fired, like, 70% of their scouts and their analysts. They fired all of their AHL coaches who just made the playoffs, I think, for, like, the first time in God knows how long. So I have no idea what's going on there. They seem to be doing a pretty good job. They fired both their GMs, and I think one of them is super highly regarded as, like, an up-and-comer, and that's, like, hockey-wide in fancy number circles and in hockey men circles. I right. always try to avoid those because I remember when, uh, what's the name of Minnesota general manager Paul who came Fenton. in? Paul Fenton. Paul Fenton was the, was the next up and coming, you know, superstar mm, GM. But not that, universally. Okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah. Not universally. It's like, but it's one of those things where they, the Pagulas in 2011 said that no money will be spared and like they're going to spend, and they did, Lord, on really dumb things. And then you listen to their presser yesterday, which I don't know if you heard the presser, but like, my God, it was Mike Harrington. Shout out to him for asking the actual tough questions that they did not answer. But they were like, oh, we need to be efficient, economic and effective. What does that mean? 
Like, what does that mean? I, I don't think it means paying Jeff Skinner $9 million. That doesn't seem efficient to me. But here's the thing. It's easy to make fun of a team for bad decisions. We do it all the time, it, it, dunking on Edmonton, you know, dunking <laughs> on the Sabres right now. You know, it's easy to kick someone when they're down. But again, you're in their position right now, and you have a chance to try to turn things around. What do you do going into this offseason? What's kind of your main goal to try to turn things around? Because you're not going to do it overnight. I think you have to understand that you're not just going to turn this team into a playoff team with one big offseason. But what do you do? How, how do you start to get things going in the right direction? Because you have a 23-year-old Jack Eichel who's under contract until 2026. You have Rasmus Dahlien who's 19 years old. No, just turned 20. You have some pieces here that you really, really like. Victor Olofsson, that guy can shoot the puck. Rasmus Asplund is a very good prospect as well. You know who else is good? Is uh, that guy who just decided that uh, KHL will be better life for him, you know? Uh, Lawrence Lawrence Pilot? Oh my god, wow. Yep. So, again, organizations in a bit in in shambles right now. I I like Henry Yokiharu, 21-year-old right-handed defenseman who can move the puck. But there's not enough scoring right now. The defense is questionable. Uh, there are some guys I like on defense. It's just they don't have, other than Rasmus Dahlin, I'm not sure if they have a guy that you can trust out there, you know, in, in a late-game situation. As much as I like my Colin Miller types and I like my Yoki Haru types, I don't They're love not, their blue yeah. line. Yoki Haru is just not there yet. He he can be with proper development, which they don't have anymore. Um, I think the I, biggest mistake to make would be is just to go, okay, we have lots of cap space this offseason. Let's go out and spend big on an unrestricted free agent. And I'm thinking, no, learn from your mistakes because that's what you did with Kyle Pozo. That's basically what you did with Jeff Skinner. Matt Molson. I don't think that's the right way to go about your... Yeah, Matt Molson too. The, the John Tavares effect is strong. Never trade for a player that John Thomas Tavares just spent a year with. <laughs> P.A. Parento. Oh, you just don't do God. it. <laughs> but I think, okay, so you bring this up. The Sabres need a rebuild, and they need a proper rebuild. Like, they don't need a draft one dude and go sign five free agents, there's our rebuild. They actually need to stop signing people in free agency and develop. And I don't know if he'd be interested based on the performance that ownership has given over the past few years and what he's dealt with at his previous franchise, but I would be calling Judd Brackett because he's clearly demonstrated he knows how to scout, and that's clearly where you're going to pick up talent. But it's one a lot of, those... of teams should be looking for Judd Brackett's services uh, yeah. now that he's on the open market. But the, the thing about that is, does Judd Brackett, he just got out of dealing with the Aquilinis and Benning and Wisebrot. Do you think he wants to then go deal with the Pagulas? Like, that's a decision Judd Brackett's going to have to make. But I, like, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't be in a hurry to do that if I were him. But it's one of those things where they actually need to commit to a rebuild, and you're not going to commit to a rebuild by consistently making big free agent signings, right? So it's one of those things, like, if you look at what some other teams have done, they get a high draft pick or two high draft picks, which the Sabres have Darlene and Eichel, who are both relatively young, and they sign the stopgap guys until they can develop the other players, right? When you think about it, you, you don't need to go out and sign someone to a $9 million contract. That's silliness. I You're think not the blueprint here is what Colorado did after their season from hell. 100%. You know? 
That's exactly what I was thinking. Because you had a superstar talent, Jack Eichel, Nathan McKinnon. You know, even though McKinnon's obviously better right now, I think Eichel's ceiling is high. He still doesn't hit what I think he can become as a 200-foot player. Offense is obviously going to be his calling card, you know, being an elite power play quarterback. But the way that Eichel can transition the puck up the ice and create offense basically all by himself, if you gave him a legitimate first-line winger to play with— I think he could easily score over 100 points, and there aren't many players in the league who can do that right now. So you have that. You have a 23-year-old franchise center locked up on what I think is a, a reasonable cap hit, considering his talent, for the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. If we include And you have this a season. franchise defenseman while you're at it. Yeah. Those are the two pieces that every team's looking for. So you don't need to rush it right now and go make a, you know, Bad decision in free agency where you're just thinking, let's quick fix this. Let's make the playoffs next year. Look at what Colorado did. They identified the players that they needed to trade, and they got young assets. They got draft capital. And then if you need to turn that into something else using a, a trade, you can do that. Acquiring assets is the best way to do that. But don't make a, dis- a dumb decision, a, a spur-of-the-moment decision of free agency based on this new hire. We're thinking, okay, we got to make a splash in free agency. we got to get the fans interested again. Yeah, they're going to try and sign Taylor Hall or some nonsense like that. Well, okay, here's the thing with superstar free agents I think you can go after because I think superstars are almost always underpaid. You look at Artemi Panarin. The Rangers, were they ready to acquire Artemi Panarin? Were they ready to compete for a cup? No, but a superstar talent's available, you should go for it. But basically, if you're in free agency and you're trying to get a good deal that's going to look good relative to the cap hit that you're paying for, mid-tier talent is not what you want. Second-line talent isn't what you want. Second- and third-line talent tends to get overpaid. You're looking for the bargain bin. You're looking for the guys who are like looking for league minimum deals, $1 million deals, try to turn their career around kind of thing, and then they'll provide surplus value. Exactly. There are a lot of deals. Jason Spezza in Toronto, there are a lot of examples of this. Or you want to get that superstar player. So if Taylor Hall is willing to come to Buffalo, be my He's guest. Not. But I doubt they're on his list of teams. I don't think Alex <laughs> Petrangelo is on it, like their radar either. Yeah, and other than those two players, is there any big-name free agent that you would actually pay legitimate money for this year? Not off the top of my head, I don't think. Okay, so speaking of trading players and acquiring players maybe don't run a con Smythe winner out of town in Ryan O'Reilly and there's I tend to believe this to be the case just because I've heard it from not just hockey Twitter and I heard it a while before it was on hockey Twitter that Ryan O'Reilly had a bonus that was due to him July 1st and He had come out and said he's tired of losing in Buffalo and it's taken the fun out of the game. And that was all the ammo they needed. So they basically, the Pagulas decided that O'Reilly needed to be traded because they didn't want to pay the bonus and he was unhappy there. So it was kind of like this perfect storm. I remember the second that trade happened, I got a lot of flack for saying that this is one of the dumbest trades I've ever seen. Ryan O'Reilly's a top 10 center in the NHL. Middle stats not ready and you got nothing back for him. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah, and then Patrick Berglund with the unfortunate um, circumstances he had. Okay, that's a problem. Vladimir That's another player who just doesn't want to play in Buffalo. A lot of guys don't want to play in Buffalo, and I don't think it has anything to do with the city because you look at the fans. It's one of the most diehard local markets in hockey. I think it's the organization. Like, at some point, it's definitely not the fans. I don't know if anyone's been to a game in Buffalo, but, like, 
it's pretty awesome. Like, the atmosphere their fans, when the building's going, is, like, it's pretty sick. I was at the, when Buffalo was playing Ottawa in the conference finals, I was at game two, and the atmosphere in that building was, like, I'll never forget it. It was so much fun, and so you'd think that, okay, they got Patrick Berglund not playing. Vladimir Saboka, I don't even think is on their team anymore. Tage Thompson. Thompson, he's tall. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's tall. Okay, ceiling, absolute ceiling, second line Maybe wing. Maybe a third? You think he, I, I, I always like, saw him as I'm a talking liner. he explodes and is the second coming of God, developmental-wise. And so, okay, he's on the second line, maybe, but he's probably third line. And then they got a pick, which I forget what that turned into. Um, but this it was from Saint- Dangle on the trade trees. It was from St. Louis, so it was like 31st overall, probably. And they get another third-round pick. So you got nothing, nothing, maybe a third-line winger, and voodoo nonsense for a guy who hey, went on hey, to Hey, 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 let's not win. call draft picks voodoo nonsense, all right? I got to look out for my fellow draft nerds Well, when there. you're drafting the way Buffalo is. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. Okay, so, and, and what did you give up? Oh, you know, just the guy who went on to win the con Smythe. Like, and that's could not easily a win a Selkie trophy in any given season. Lady Bing, all like one of the best defensive centers in the NHL. Probably vi- like in terms of when we talk about defensive centers, he's highly underrated. And he's it's- on that list with him, Couturier, you know, Bergeron, Kopitar in his prime. We're just talking about elite defensive centers that you want up there against the best competition. Yeah, like you don't accidentally win the Conn Smythe. That's that's not how it works. And hey, so, hey uh, Sidney Crosby would disagree with that. But. Okay, well, he's also Sidney Crosby, so, like, he can get a reputation vote. He stole um, Phil Kessel's Con Smythe. I'm still not over it. So, I think, like, to me, not getting, not trading Ristolainen when you actually could have gotten something tangible for him, big error. Trading O'Reilly for nothing, not a good idea, right? And I think and again, Goddard the Colorado definitely... example is the one I like bringing up because Matt Duchesne wanted out in Colorado. They and they still got something. Out. Did they trade him that summer when teams were offering them pennies on the dollar? Nope. No, they waited for the right deal. The right deal came along. The right deal ended up being comically good because of that Ottawa first rounder that ended up being in there. It ended up being, uh, was it the fourth overall pick? It I was Bowen say? Byram, yeah. Yeah, that's not bad when Bowen Byram is the main piece in a trade. That's a potentially franchise defense when we'll see how his development goes but they waited for the right trade and they made it and this was the argument that I've made whenever teams force a trade in the offseason where they go no 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 this player isn't a part of our long-term future we need to move on I understand that mentality but when you force a trade and you don't get proper value back I'm never a big fan of it I wasn't a big fan of the Phil Kessel trade when it was made in the the first one well how many Phil Kessel trades have there been there have been a lot the one from Toronto to Pittsburgh, I wasn't a big fan of because I thought, hey, this guy's been a top 10 scorer in the league over the last, what, three to five seasons. And the best asset you got back was Kasperi Kapanen or Scott Harrington at the time. It just didn't seem like a great trade. It was not Ryan great. Ryan O'Reilly, same thing. What was the best piece that you got back in that trade? Tage Thompson? Probably the uh, first round s- pick. Yeah. And like the 31st overall pick might as well be a second, second or third round, round pick. pick when yeah. you look at draft pick value. So. It's just not the proper return you're looking for for a player of that caliber. That really like, to set me, them back because they if, thought Middlestat would come in. If I'm trading with St. Louis, which is what happened, 
I am demanding if you're getting Ryan O'Reilly, I'm getting something like Jordan Cairo. Like we're getting something tangible here that's actually going to help us. And I like I I don't know what to say, but like Jordan Cairo or Robert Thomas are absolutely Robert Thomas be better, came to mind for me. Yeah, yeah, better hockey players than Tage Thompson. That is like you need a high end skill caliber player because if you're trading Ryan O'Reilly, that means you're rebuilding. Like it just does. And it's not like he was on a one year contract. It's not like it was a rental. Exactly. Like it was a legitimate trade. It's not a good contract. <laughs> so you've got to get something tangible. Vince Dunn, like something where it, people don't look at it and go, um, all of these pieces are terrible. Like, they basically got quantity over quality. Whereas to, as a fan, like, I would prefer getting Jordan Cairo and a second-round pick type of thing. Like, I would prefer two quality assets, Jordan Cairo and a first, over a bunch of nonsense, but I get five nonsense, as opposed hey, to two if we're, if we're talking things. nonsense, I love draft capital as nonsense. You give me a bunch of third and fourth and fifth round picks, I mean... Draft capital matters at the end of the day, but if we're talking if you about know trading how to draft. a star player, exactly. If we're talking about <laughs> trading a star player, you need to get something back in return. They just didn't get fair value back in that trade, and then they expected Casey Middlestat to come from playing decently in the NCAA to being a second line center at the NHL level, and it didn't happen. And a lot of people were wrong on that. And I think if you were paying close attention, you'd know that that probably wasn't a smart bet to make in the first place. Yeah, and I think that. Trading O'Reilly, kind of, they thought to themselves, oh, well, then we have to do this with Casey Middlestat. You don't have to do anything. You tell Casey Middlestat, you're not ready. You're going back to school. We're going to be terrible for another year because now we've lost our best center or our best defensive center at very minimum. And you just deal with that, but you let Middlestat develop because now that you've traded O'Reilly, you cannot afford to not have Middlestat pan out. And now, Middlestat's going to end up playing on the wing. Like, it's just one of those things where you can't operate like that. It can't be a whack-a-mole type situation where you're constantly whacking different problems and creating other holes. It just, it doesn't work like that. And that's in life. Like, that's in hockey. That's in every sport, right? It's one of those things. And yeah, like, I just... Botterill made some decisions that sunk him. Let's We have to be honest about that. But I don't think that he, nor Tim Murray, nor Phil Housley, whomever else, were the problem. I, I just, I really don't. All right, so let's talk about the new general manager in Buffalo, Jack Eichel. Uh- <laughs> Basically. <laughs> So the Kovalev shift, we do this every week where we we hop up on the ice and we float around for a few minutes and then we hop back off the ice. You know, like a late season Buffalo Sabres game, basically, like any typical forward on them. So Jack Eichel, what the hell is going through his mind right now? Okay, so let's be very transparent. It is quite clear that he speaks to ownership. Um... And We've always joked about him being the general manager and head coach. Right, okay, so perfect example. Three weeks ago, Botterill gets a vote of confidence. Last week, Jack Eichel is on a Zoom meeting with the media and calls out Jason Botterill and says he's tired of losing, the team needs to get better, X, Y, Z, whatever. And on Tuesday, Jason Botterill gets fired. 
Like, I don't think that's a coincidence. And at what point, because we have this conversation with Edmonton, although they seem to have turned a corner, um, at what point does Jack Eichel say, enough is enough, I'm asking for a trade, because maybe it's not the GM and it's not uh, the coach, it's ownership. And the one thing you can't do is trade the owners. So at what point does Jack Eichel ask for a trade? I'm honestly surprised it hasn't happened yet. You know what's funny about players in this generation is that they don't ask for trades nearly as often as players did in the 90s. In the 90s, you'd have players not show up to camp and basically hold out in contract situations, demand a trade, refuse to play until they get traded, and it would happen the next day. I was told that this generation is too soft and is too demanding. So what you're telling me is that Jack Eichel is perhaps more patient than people in the 90s. Am I reading that correctly? Well, you know what's funny is when you do research on, like, uh, different generations, you know what the older generation says about the previous generation? It's the exact same thing every single time. Because, yes. <laughs> you know, there are social changes that someone didn't grow up with, and they're not used to it, and they don't like it, and you're basically, you become the old man yelling at clouds when you're getting <laughs> mad at younger people. It's just, it's kind of the way life works. And I know that I'm going to end up being mad at my kids in the future. I'm be like, stop doing that. Back in my day, we used to do this. And it just, it's, it's a natural Back in my day, life. we yelled at people on Twitter. Yeah. And they're going to be like, that was stupid. And I'll be like, you know what? It, it really was. <laughs> no, you'll be the old man that's like, no, this is a, my stick in the sand and we will not be doing anything else. You'll be that guy. Off the glass and out is going to make a comeback, and it's actually going to be statistically proven to be the right strategy. And I'm going to be like, no, I want those clean zone exits and those clean zone entries. Get back here. But getting back to the, the Jack Eichel situation, how long before he asks for a trade? If, if next season goes terribly, wouldn't shock me if he demands a trade. He seems like the type who would actually do it. Connor McDavid doesn't strike me as the type to do it. You know, yeah. but Jack Eichel seems like he's a bit more outspoken. Exactly. You can tell his frustrations, like he wears it on his face in some press conferences sometimes. You can <laughs> yeah. see how pissed off he is. Um, one of the interesting things when we bring up Jack Eichel and kind of flexing his power, him and Austin Matthews are kind of like two of the, the younger players in this generation that seem to be really flexing their muscles. And we talk about player empowerment in the NBA. Austin Matthews demanding the contract that he demanded. Jack Eichel at the time demanding an unprecedented contract for himself. And both of them seem to have some impact on when it comes to Jack Eichel, the general manager. When it comes to Austin Matthews getting the coach fired. You know, these are things where players now are having a bit more power than we're used to them having. But at the same time, like I said, in the 90s, players used to flex these muscles all the time. I think the Twitter generation, we seem to be flaming players all the time. Any Anytime they... They do say something that's a bit off. You're going to get right-wing Twitter coming on and say, oh, you know, this isn't how you're supposed to be doing things. You know, you know what's you funny, though? keep your mouth shut. Is all the people that say exactly what you just said are the same goddamn people that were doing the I'm standing up for myself in the 90s. So they're the exact same people. Like, the Venn diagram is a circle. Yeah, but now you're on the uh, management side of things and you don't like it. <laughs> exactly. But I just find it, like super ironic that all the people saying oh yeah like you can't do this and you can't be outspoken and the whatever because back in my day this i mean shut up back in your day you literally cross-checked people in the face like the the whole quarantine thing about how oh the people the players today are so soft well you know what like i watched some old-time hockey because we're in quarantine and there's no sports yet and i counted on one shift that i saw eight infractions within like 30 seconds 
So guess what? The, like the game is better. There's less dirty hits nowadays because when they are, they're so egregious. And then like, hopefully they get suspended. But like the same people calling out all this BS from players today are the same people that are like, oh, well, this, that and pick up your bootstraps nonsense. Like, I just can't. Ugh. I genuinely believe that whichever type of hockey or whatever sport, music, you know, movies that you liked in your formative years, you know, from, let's say, ages 15 through 25, whatever type of hockey you watched then is probably the type of hockey you like watching. And if it's 40 years later, you probably don't love it as much as you did in your youth. But I think that's just kind of the way the world works. And I've accepted that people are going to have different opinions and that kind of thing. But when it comes to Jack Eichel, he has an impact on the team when it comes to the general manager, when it comes to the coaching staff. How much impact do you think he has on uh, personnel? Because I know we joke about Jack Eichel being the general manager, but he's got to be super frustrated with what's going on, and he's got to be saying behind closed doors, if you don't get me some help up front, I'm out of here. So what do you do? You're, you're working for the team. Jack Eichel is clearly frustrated and clearly wants some help what do you do to help solve those problems? I think having Ralph Kruger, um, he's probably the best guy for the job. Like when you think of his experience at Southampton, um, like let's be very honest. Um, the footballing world is a lot more cutthroat than hockey is. It works differently, but in terms of, I want these players that happens a ton in football, if Cristiano Ronaldo comes and says, I want this, that's probably not a good example because Cristiano Ronaldo is like the Sidney Crosby. But okay, if Jack Eichel is like the Robert Lewandowski of hockey, if Robert Lewandowski goes to Carlines Rumenega and says, I want this type of service, like basically what happened was there was a player's revolt at Bayern in the fall and Thomas Muller wasn't playing, and when the new guy came in, he was highly respected. Thomas Muller started playing. Him and Lewandowski had the best seasons they've had in their career. So it's one of those things where if a star player, somebody like Eichel, comes and says, I need this, whether it's coaching, whether it's uh, personnel or whatever, like you have to give them that voice. So I think now that they have this flat organization where it basically goes the players, Ralph Kruger, Kevin Adams, the Pagulas, Jack Eichel probably will have a bigger say because at some point, like you said, he's going to say, you're going to get me someone or I'm out of here, which is exactly what Ralph Kruger would have experienced in the Premier League. So I think he is actually kind of well-equipped to deal with it. And by all accounts, the culture that he's creating in the dressing room is good. It's everything that's above the dressing room that is a complete dumpster fire. So on that note, I think we're just going to hop off the ice, Jack Eichel style, just slowly skate our way back. And, and know, break our stick slouch. over the and, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be the way that most Buffalo fans are feeling right now. Exactly. All right, so let's wrap up with some mailbag questions here. We put out uh, a question on Twitter asking some people to, to reach out and ask us any questions they have about the Buffalo situation. Which one do you want to get to first, Rachel? Let's talk about the difference between video and traditional scouting, because I think that um, the Pagulas came out and said that they're going to rely on video. Um, I definitely have experience doing both. I know you do a ton of video stuff. Um, I think that, that it's going to be important for Sabres fans to understand kind of what their ownership is wading into. Uh, so do we want, like, I say we start there. 
Yeah, what is the difference between video and traditional scouting? Because to me, it sounds like the exact same thing. It's like, oh, watching people and making notes and making observations. But I think being there in person versus watching it on video, you get a different feel. You do get a different feel. And it's one of those things where um, you're kind of at the mercy of the camera angle when you're doing video scouting. And um, a lot of people who don't video scout don't know this, but like, if it's not filmed in one of the premier rinks in the CHL, it basically looks like it's filmed through a potato. So like numbers aren't really discernible. Like if you wanted to watch the MHL or the VHL in Russia, just all the best to you because not possible. Um, it so, looks like it's like a double A tournament that they put on Channel Ten on Rogers. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, and like sometimes it's literally filmed through an iPhone. So it's one of those things where it's like, K. Okay, um, so you're kind of at the mercy from that, and the camera angle, like I said, you're at the mercy of the camera angle. So like in Sudbury, for example, there's a giant pole in the middle of the screen. So if the camera pans, you just well, see a giant. Well, they just designed pole. their stadium based on the Barclays Center. So I mean, you have to. Uh, it's basically know, yeah. It's yeah, but it's one of those things where um, you're at the mercy, and whereas when you're live, when you're traditionally scouting. Um, like, if I show up to watch Oshawa, let's say, and I'm watching Ty Tulio or Phil Tomasino kind of thing, I can pick and choose. Like, I can physically zone in on a player for their entire shift. What are they doing? Where are they looking? What is their body position at different parts of the shift? Like, I can zone in on where they are relative. What are they doing relative to the puck? Because then I can discern their habits off the puck. And it's very hard to have that same capability on video because the camera angle does not allow for that. And the second thing is bench. You cannot see the bench in um, video scouting 90% of the time. And to me, like, you could tell a lot about a player based on how they interact on the bench, whether it's with the coaching staff, with their teammates. Um, Are they engaged? Because... That's when you're doing research on a player, you want to know if they are engaged or if they like if they care. Um, and so I think I definitely prefer like I will weigh live viewings more than I will weigh video viewings. Now I get more video viewings because of the nature of the work that I do, but you are at the mercy of a lot of things in video scouting. So if I'm an NHL team, video scouting is not where I'm putting a ton of my stock. Because, yes, you can watch, like, five or six games a day. That's great. But, like, you're not talking to people. You're not able to speak with that player directly after they've played. So, like, you can't get agreed on how they take things, how they handle things. And so, for me, like, any team that has that kind of money should absolutely be investing in in scouting. And, of course, video scouting is is good like I did a bit of that in New Jersey but like holy moly like you can't just go only there it's gonna significantly impede unless you're using data then that's a different situation can I bring up one counterpoint that I do like about uh using video as opposed to being there in person just because this is something I've dealt with with the Leafs report cards like I've asked myself I'm like would I rather ability to rewind because I rewind (laughs) the same play if it's an important play like four or five times and I just check I'm like wait who missed their assignment there okay and then who failed Mm -hmm. to cover afterwards on the three on two and it's just there are some things where there are, there are benefits to video because you can rewind and check things. And But again, at the same time, that in-person experience, the more scouts I talk to, the more they say, yeah, the in-person scouting experience 
it's just miles ahead of watching video. And it does make sense when you think about it. I've just always been such a video nerd that I try to stand up for my fellow you Well, know, I'm video a video obsessies. nerd too, but like now that I've started live scouting, what I've noticed is if I don't, like if I don't, if I miss something live, I'll just take a note of it and I'll go back and I'll watch the video because I'll remember, like I'll have a note of what I was thinking and then I'll, I'll see it on the video. So it's one of those things where I very rarely will write a scouting report without watching some type of supplementary video afterwards. But to only rely on video specifically for European teams and anything but the KHL and like anything like the BCHL or the AJHL or even like some of the CHL teams, like good luck. We joke about it at Elite Prospects. Like some of these things, they literally look like they're filmed on someone's dad's phone. So, I was going to say, unless it's the London Knights on HD on Sportsnet, like a lot of junior games suck from a video quality standpoint. Exactly. And so, and when you think about it, how many scouts are young like me or you, or how many scouts are in their 50s and 60s? Like, if the eyesight, which we, we want to talk about things that deteriorate as you get older, your eyesight and your hearing are two things that go. And so... You want them to look at a computer screen that's like 13 inches big or even a monitor that's 24 inches big and expect them to be able to discern things like numbers when like I can barely discern them because you're looking through netting or behind a pole like they're going to miss things like which pixel is the puck you're trying Exa- to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the difference of so Sabres fans like if there's one thing that, that you're going to be mad about, I would be it would be that they're chintzing out on this. Unless they say we're investing heavily in analytics. Like, if they decide they're going to hire Megan Cheka or something like that, then, like, okay, maybe I will peel back a little bit. But video scouting over traditional scouting, like, I just did. No, not a thing. You either have to do them together or traditionally. I'm going to finish up with a casual question just because it's been a couple weeks here. We haven't done a podcast. We haven't got to just shoot the shit towards the end here. What are you watching on Netflix these days? Or what are you watching in your free time to just kind of help, you know, ease the insanity of, of living in quarantine with uh, with family? Because I know right now it's a tough time for everyone. Different situations. Parents are losing their minds with their kids. Kids are losing their minds with their parents. Whoever you're living with right now, I got to think you've been in an argument or two. So what are you doing to get away from that and just kind of have a nice hour or two in front of your Netflix screen? Um, to be fair, I, I'm not watching a ton of Netflix because so my bank job is keeping me uh, extremely busy. Um, yeah, I know you. You have like 10 seconds of free time every day. So I'm just curious yeah. what you're doing with it. Um, I basically I schedule myself so that I watch every time Byron plays I watch um because that is my Davies exactly that is my true escape where like confidently when I'm watching Byron play nothing else matters in the world like my phone goes down I like I don't care about anything else in when there's a goal does your Apple watch uh tell you that your heart rate is uh concerningly high Yes. That you've taken a serious fall. I remember that happened in the Leafs when they had their first playoff game. It's like, it looks like you've taken a serious fall. And it's like, nope, that's just That was the first stress. hockey game I watched in like three months. But yeah, like for me, <laughs> someone asked me this the other day. If you had to pick, if someone said you can only watch Bayern Munich or hockey, which one would you pick? And I was like, like it's not even a debate. It's Bayern. Like I... Wow. It's one of those things where to me, like nothing else matters. Although like I've been spending a lot of time um, watching... I watched 13th on Netflix. I watched a lot of like Malcolm X stuff uh, 
if I'm going to watch Netflix, I try to make it like educational just because like, A, I don't have a ton of time. And um, I've been doing reading and a lot of hanging by the pool, which. Nice. I was going to yeah, say, is like, that kind of weather? My Instagram is just littered with me like by the pool. And honestly, that's like the two hours a day maybe that I get. But to distract myself, like I just I turn to the one thing that has never, ever let me down. And that is my goddamn soccer team. <laughs> We've got a badminton net set up in the backyard right Ooh. now. We've been getting the charcoal barbecue out, you know, social distanced, of course. But the great thing about badminton is that it's automatically distanced, right? Like, you can't. Well, yeah. Come like, within, you can't I've been playing tennis, so I guess that side. counts, right? Yeah, exactly. And I started rollerblading, too, to try to get myself out of the house Ooh. a bit. On Netflix, I just started a Money Heist, and I'm enjoying it. It's a Spanish uh, TV series, but it's dubbed in English. I enjoy it. And I also I've heard, a couple of my billion. players have told me to watch that. It's good. I, I yeah. give it a try. It might not right. be for you. Some people don't love dubbed stuff, but if it might be for you, give it You're a try. You're saying this to the Bill- person who watches TV shows in like two, at least two different languages. Yeah, I was like when you. people watch. What, I, languages what is it? Do you speak? You speak German. You speak English. English, and I understand a, like a fair bit of French. Okay, all right. I wasn't sure yeah, if you which had means, any, like, Cantonese or Mandarin. Mandarin um, or I can order, so, because of my background, like, I can order food in Cantonese. Um, I was going to say, so can I. General Tao chicken and chicken fried No, rice. like, I can actually, like, if I went to, a, like, a restaurant, I can do the full thing in Cantonese, like, anything. Um, but because of, like, the German, you understand French, Dutch, like, all of that. Um, Swiss. That's what I realized when I went to Italy, is that a lot of the words were similar to French. Same in Spanish. Yeah. It's uh, very similar. It's very similar. So, But, yeah, so you're on the Netflix kick. we got to get you in. Like, the Premier League started back up, and, like, Liverpool is going to win, even though they're, like, not my team. But I want to see Jurgen Klopp win. For a while win. there. For a while there, Bundesliga was my life because nothing was on. It was the first thing to come back, and I was like, all right, I'll watch some Dortmund. I'll watch some Alfonso Davies on Bayern Munich, but we're starting to get a Meep. few more options now. I'm a big soccer guy. I play a lot of FIFA, you know? Like, so yeah, as, as I, much as you want to make me for my video game habits. Uh. Like, everyone's talking, <laughs> oh, the NHL's coming back in August, and I'm like, yeah, the Champions League starts on August 7th, and that's really what I care about. <laughs> oh, Champions League, because that's when all the pro soccer leagues will be, like, back officially. It's not even, it's like, the Champions League is, like, the best teams from the European leagues kind of thing. And right now it's just like the quarterfinals and the semis. So it's like Bayern, Real, Barcelona, like it's the elite of the elite are, are playing. And, and so for me, like given, I hopefully will not have to make this choice because hopefully like hockey is played at a different time than when Bayern plays, but I either am purchasing a second TV to watch twice two games at once, or I will be watching Bayern. I don't miss a Bayern say, game for the whole world. Might need to get that three monitor set up when sports come back because there's going to be NHL games basically from like the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. NBA playoffs, the first round's going to be insane. You're going to have Champions League. It's going to be a good time for sports and once you have it MLS comes back. Too. Yeah, so there you go. You I'll got watch a lot TFC. of stuff. <laughs> We're still at least, what, a month or so away from that, maybe a month and a half before things really come back, but I'm trying to stay optimistic here because we're almost there. Us sports junkies who are just looking for stuff to cling on to, I don't need to cling on to just German soccer anymore. There's a I few do. more things <laughs> out there. I, I, I refuse to ever put on NASCAR. One of my NHL buddies no, is like, no, hold on, I can't play. I'm just watching NASCAR. I'm like, why the hell are you watching NASCAR? I'm like, I'll give you I'll give you a hint. They're going to turn left. But <laughs> Yep, they are. You bet. Um, yeah, like I, 
I'm, I'm actually super thankful that like a lot of um, the Bundesliga has been watched by people in Canada because like growing up, I used to get chirped all the time for watching the Bundesliga and not really watching like La Liga or the Premier League or like whatever. But for me, now that a Alfonso Davies is the like one of the best left backs in the world and he's Canadian, like a, a lot of people have kind of become interested in Bayern and in the Bundesliga. So how old is he? Is he 19? He is 19 years old, yeah. And he's from Vancouver or he's from out west, right? He's He um, was born in a uh, refugee camp and came and lived in Edmonton and played in Vancouver's academy Ah, and then it. got sold to Bayern. And he, like you said, arguably the best left back in the world right now at age 19 with his speed and his ability to get up the pitch and make things happen with his you know skill and creativity love yeah. watching him play you don't play 90 minutes consistently for Bayern Munich by accident so I think it's one of those things that it's going to be very entertaining and um Sportsnet carrying the rights to that um is huge for Canadian soccer like he's going to have a positive impact on um the next generation in the same way that like potentially Steve Nash had on the basketball kind of situation, same with Vince Carter, like Alfonso Davies Steve legitimately Nash got me into basketball. I, I didn't care yeah. about it until Steve Nash came along. And now it's one of my favorite things to do is just watch basketball. And soccer is a way more globalized sport too. So it's one of those things. He has a chance to be the biggest Canadian athlete other than it just well, sucks Christine that he's doing Sinclair. It from a position that typically isn't one that like, you know, takes over the game. It's not like he's the major goal. He's revolutionizing it's not it like he's the in the midfield way. controlling the game. But then again, in the, in modern football, you know the backs who are running up and down the sidelines are, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing way more now than they were, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. They're being well, asked yeah. to do a lot because they're being asked to do a lot because, like, Manuel Neuer revolutionized how the keeper position was played, and so like the Basically, keeper's Marty playing higher up the pitch. with his ability to come way out of his net and be like a an extra defenseman back there. Yeah, so now the outside wingers can go up the pitch more because now you've got an extra defender back there, basically. And so it's starting to have this, like, tidal wave effect. But, yeah, that's... I don't know. I'll watch Money Heist and see what happens, but... uh, I'll watch more Alfonso Davies, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog on the left wing there, just zooming up and making plays. (laughs) Thomas Muller called him the FC Bayern Roadrunner with the sound effect, and I was like, okay, that's basically... That's what it is now. perfect. (laughs) And he's only going to get better. He's 19. Yeah. It's good stuff. And he's not going anywhere. Like, anyone who thinks that Bayern's selling him, they've already publicly come out. I don't think they did it in English, but they did it in German. They publicly came out and said, we're not selling him, and they signed him to a contract extension last month. So if you think Barca or Real is getting him in the next, like, year, it's not happening. Or my, my, my Man United hopes of them ever being good again. Yeah, oh, no. God. Pick a, <laughs> pick a new team, man. <laughs> we'll get out of here. It's too much soccer talk, but... It's good doing this podcast again. I, I, it, I love talking hockey. You love talking hockey. It's why we do this. I think we'll be back again next week to talk about whatever the next big news is in hockey. And if not, we'll come up with some interesting kind of topic to talk about. Alrighty. Well, have a great week and we will be back. All right. Enjoy your 10 seconds of free time and check out Money Heist. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.